If you were paying any attention to the 2016 U.S. presidential election, you would think that just about every factory in the United States has either left for China or is about to leave. But when it comes to factories that are currently building apartments, or will soon be building apartments, we're probably just getting started with constructing these factories in the United States. Shipping costs make transporting building modules from overseas to the United States prohibitively expensive. And this is likely to remain the case for some time. That along with undeniable demographic shifts afoot in the United States that will be pushing the demand much higher for multifamily buildings in urban areas suggests that we may very well witness the transformation of American factory-built construction into a multi-billion dollar industry. Based on what world populations and growth rates suggest, you might think that the urgent need for urban housing over the next 30 years will largely be an African and Asian phenomenon. But the truth is that the migration to cities is also expected to happen right here at home. The United States Census Bureau provides statistics on the number of permits issued for new construction starts each year throughout the entire country. In 2015, 41% of permits were issued for structures that consisted of two or more units, referred to as a multifamily residence. Not exactly a screaming validation of my argument that you should be building modular multifamily buildings in cities when 59% of permits were for single-family residences. But let's look at the trend line towards multifamily construction over the past 25 years. Again, from the United States Census Bureau's website, in 1991, 21% of permits were for multifamily residences. In 2000, 25% of permits were for multifamily residences. In 2007, 30% of permits were for multifamily residences. And as I told you before, in 2015, 41% of permits were for multifamily residences. The rising trend of multifamily starts as a percentage of total building starts is unmistakable. Here's another interesting set of facts. The U.S. Census Bureau breaks down the multifamily residence into three categories, two units, three and four units, and five units and up. In 1991, 79% of the multifamily category permits were for buildings with five plus units. By 2015, 93% of permits in the multifamily category were for buildings with five plus units. As it turns out, if you're an entrepreneur and thinking about factory built housing in the United States, the biggest market to go after today is single family homes. But if the trend towards urban development continues, the biggest market to attack will soon be for multifamily homes. Think apartment buildings constructed in factories. In China, factory-built construction meant giant pieces built inside a factory and assembled on site, much like Legos. In New York City, two companies began with a modular approach, meaning they were building boxes inside of factories that would be stacked one on top of another once they arrived on the job site. You're listening to Predicting Our Future. I'm Andrew Weinrich. This podcast explores current industries that are ripe for massive disruption, as well as some of the most exciting opportunities for entrepreneurs to explore. 
This is the fourth episode in a series about my prediction that in the near future, a majority of our homes will be built in factories. In the last episode, I explored Google's interest in using technology to shape the construction process, along with a well-known Chinese company building prefabricated skyscrapers in astonishingly short periods of time. In this episode, we'll dive into the story behind how one large real estate developer partnered with one international construction firm to develop a modular factory in New York City. This podcast is sponsored by DigitalOcean, a cloud platform company that is simplifying infrastructure for software developers. Thousands of startups have selected DigitalOcean because of how easy it is to get up and running with their platform. As you scale, DigitalOcean will scale with you. If you're a startup, apply for DigitalOcean's Hatch program, where if selected, you'll have access to their cloud for 12 months, in addition to technical training and mentorship. You can also go to do.co forward slash predicting our future and ask the sales team for a free trial. New York City's population is growing. In 2014, the city was home to just under 8.5 million people. By 2030, we're expected to surpass 9 million people. In 2016 alone, New York City will add a total of 24,575 new apartments. Not to brag, but my home in Brooklyn will lead all the other boroughs with over 6,000 new units. At the end of this podcast series on factory-built housing, I'll make some predictions about what the future will look like and who will be the winners in this space. Without giving it all away, I can tell you who I don't expect to be the agents of massive change. Billionaire New York real estate developers. And that's because in the last century, transformations within big industries usually came from entrepreneurs outside of an industry, unburdened in their thinking by that industry's old way of doing business. So you can imagine my surprise when I learned that the largest New York City developers have not just thought about this space, but one in particular, Bruce Ratner and his company Forest City Ratner made a considerable effort to get into factory-built modular housing. In 2012, there were already several modular buildings constructed in factories in Brooklyn. Not just anywhere in Brooklyn, but in the Brooklyn Navy Yard. I live in North Brooklyn, in a neighborhood called Williamsburg, 15 blocks north of the Williamsburg Bridge that connects Brooklyn to Manhattan. If you stay on the road closest to the East River and go another 15 blocks south of the bridge, by bike of course, because on the road you'd be going against traffic, you'd come to the Brooklyn Navy Yard. During World War II, this was the largest shipyard for warship production on the East Coast. Now the shipbuilding industry is long gone and the Navy Yard has remained virtually vacant until the recent gentrification of Brooklyn. All of a sudden, people have been noticing this wide expanse of space that could be used for factories and two such factories, both focused on prefabricating housing modules for New York City development, were built here, right in my backyard. The first factory was owned by FCS Modular, and the second factory was owned by Capsis. Neither of their stories has a good ending, at least so far. When you think about sheer ambition, the scope of FCS Modular's first project was breathtaking. 
There are rare opportunities in New York City to develop 21 acres from scratch, but that's what the Pacific Park Project in the heart of Brooklyn represented. With the help of eminent domain, Forest City Ratner acquired the 21 acres and planned development of a new stadium, which was to become the Barclays Center, as well as 6,430 apartments. To give you an idea of the scale of 6,430 apartments, think about the Freedom Tower in Lower Manhattan. The Freedom Tower is 104 stories tall. If it were an apartment building and each floor had 20 apartments, that would mean there were roughly 2,000 apartments in the building. You'd need to build over three Freedom Towers to match the number of apartments that were planned for this project. Chris Sharples is one of the founders of New York City architecture firm Shop Architects, which was hired to design 461 Dean Street, the first multifamily building in Pacific Park. He talked with me about how the idea for building these apartments inside of a factory came about. When we first started the Dean Street project, we, we actually designed it as a conventional building. And uh, Forest City came back and said, could you take that design and translate it into a modular construction type. We analyzed the whole way you would go about translating a building that was going to be built in, in concrete into a uh, modular frame construction. And it was quite successful. They expected cost savings from producing the apartment modules inside of a factory. We were looking at um, 15 to 20% savings. And this is the other important thing to understand, is we were also looking that there would also be a time impact here, maybe saving three to four months on construction time, which has a huge impact on your carrying costs. So obviously we're thinking your first building, maybe you break even. Your second building, you get a little quicker. Maybe by your 10th building, you're doing it in half the time. That is a huge savings in interest on the financing side. The other thing is, you know, what happens with, with buildings, because you typically it takes 18 months to two years for a building of this size to be completed. You can sort of have stages of, of occupancy, like you maybe you get people moved in on the first six floors. Well, with a modular building, it's done. People can move in very quickly. In 2013, Forest City sold 70% of the Pacific Park project to Greenland Holdings, a Chinese state-owned real estate developer, and hired Skanska, the Swedish multinational construction company, to oversee development. Forest City and Skanska partnered to set up FCS Modular to put into effect the plan that Chris had discussed with me. The first goal of the Pacific Park project was to build a 32-story building with 363 apartments where each apartment or module was constructed in their jointly owned factory in the Brooklyn Navy Yard. When the modules were completed in the factory, they were to be transferred to the site and then assembled by Skanska, who was responsible for essentially stacking the modules on top of one another. Trying to figure out where things went wrong has been like trying to put together a puzzle where the total number of pieces seems to expand with each new piece that I put into place. At the time of 461 Dean's construction, Roger Krulak was an executive at Forest City who represented Forest City's interests at FCS Modular. 
the size and height of the modular building required a lot of different technologies than have ever been used kind of in shorter modular buildings, you know, under 10 or 12 stories. So somebody had to figure out how to implement uh, that process, right? How do you make the mods live in the factory the same way they live on site? Skanska did that miserably. Um, and the result of it was that the lower floors had some serious problems going from factory to field because they were actually building the mods in the factory out of square. If you build something that is out of square in the factory and then try to stack it on in the field where it's supposed to go, it doesn't fit. So I'm not talking about huge orders of magnitude problems. I'm talking about their minor problems. But when you have a thousand pieces, they have to fit correctly. In simple terms, it sounded to me like a problem where the boxes didn't fit neatly on top of the boxes below them. Litigation ensued. In 2014, the factory at the Brooklyn Navy Yard was briefly closed and 150 FCS modular employees were furloughed. Forest City eventually bought out Skanska and development recommenced. The factory that Forest City underwrote was staffed for many more projects but Greenland decided to build all the other towers on the Pacific Park project without the factory-built modules, and Forest City put their modular business up for sale. The promise of a project performed for less money, built in a shorter period of time, and with a higher quality product, went unfulfilled. In its place were angry investors, workers, and large development companies who had fallen out of love with modular building in New York. Nonetheless, when 461 Dean Street was completed in August of 2016, it stood as the world's tallest modular building. In July 2012, at about the same time that the Forest City project was being developed, Mayor Bloomberg launched an initiative designed to address a different housing problem in New York. The demographics of New York had changed substantially since World War II. Today, only 17% of New Yorkers live in nuclear family households. More single people translates to a need for more apartments. Historically, New York has met the need for more housing by building up, but the population growth combined with more people living alone convinced Mayor Bloomberg to consider another alternative, building smaller. The New York City Building Code requires that no apartment be less than 400 square feet. In 2012, Mayor Bloomberg announced a competition entitled ADAPT, where proposals were solicited for innovative, affordable micro-housing to be built at 335 East 27th Street in Manhattan. Madadnock Development was selected as the developer for the city's first micro-unit modular building. Called Carmel Place, the new building was designed to have nine stories with 55 units, ranging from 260 to 360 square feet. Mimi Wong was the architect from the New York City firm N Architects that worked on the project. She thought a big reason for Monad Knox's selection was the fact that their bid included factory-built modules. One of the many benefits is that you don't have to suffer through two years of the banging and the truck stalling and, you know, all the construction noise that, you know, a lot of us learn to live with. And that was, in fact, one of the big reasons why we were chosen. 
and architects hoped on-site construction could be completed in three months. Mimi also believed that modular construction held the promise of a superior product compared to an apartment building that was constructed entirely on-site. Rather than waiting for the very end to see how all the finishes come together and to kind of do your quality control, often at that point it's too late, right? Too late for things to change. With modular units, you are seeing all that stuff in the factory a long time before it hits the site. So, for example, I I mentioned there are eight apartments per floor, but there are five different unit types. And so we looked at all of them as they were rolling down the, the factory line and approved each one before they rolled out all the others. And so we had to make sure that all the measurements were absolutely accurate. And because of the pressures of a small site, we could not lose a whole line of apartment units. We were down to an eighth of an inch and a quarter of an inch tolerance on the measurements um, of rooms. In normal construction, that is not possible. It is not reasonable to expect a contractor to be within an eighth or quarter of an inch inch accuracy. Monadnock engaged its sister company Capsis to construct the modules for Carmel Place. Capsis's factory was also located at the Brooklyn Navy Yard and had a longer history than FCS Modular in building modular multifamily housing. Although Capsis had a history in modular, that didn't mean the Carmel Place project was without its design challenges. Capsis, before our project, had only built a five-story building with their modular system. Ours is nine plus the mechanical, so call it 10. The other big difference is that their project, so they had been doing some assisted living uh, type development projects with their um, modular system. So in addition to only building five stories previously, they had also only built a one hour fire rated building. This one needed to be two-hour. So there were a lot of regulatory agency approvals that we needed to obtain. On Monadnock's construction website, they say that Capsis has built over 2 million square feet and 2,000 units of modular housing since 1996. Their biggest project to date is called Nehemiah Spring Creek, located in the East New York section of Brooklyn. That project, only partially complete at the time of this recording in October 2016, envisions 56 single-family homes, 27 two-family homes, and 1,200 rental units. And yet, even with the successful completion of the Carmel Place project, Capsis announced it was closing the doors on its Brooklyn Navy Yard factory and selling its business to Whitley Manufacturing another modular construction company with a focus on office construction. It's unclear how the remainder of Nehemiah Spring Creek units will be built. The sad part of the story is that they lost their lease. They lost their lease because the Brooklyn Navy Yard is completely full. Steiner Studio has taken over a large chunk of the Brooklyn Navy Yard. And manufacturing companies like Capsis just couldn't afford to, you know, find another space in New York. They couldn't find anything comparable except for on Staten Island, but that would have been a nightmare because they have to truck over the Verrazano Bridge, the units, and that is a logistical kind of, you know, that's a non-starter. 
I wanted to understand why a company with such a long modular history didn't just find another location near New York City. Robbie Cullman was the general manager of Capsis at the time of their sale. Well, the problem is, um, in order to move a business like that, you have to get a new factory. And it's not like you can take any building for modular. It has to be very specific. It has to be high ceilings, cranes, very wide bays, drive in, drive out. And the city of New York also has made it very difficult to move modular buildings that are drastically oversized. Capsis was formed, one of the reasons in New York City was they could move very wide modules that you couldn't build in Pennsylvania and bring them to New York, but you could build them in New York and deliver them, and it made a very big advantage. But once the city made it so difficult, if the business was going to be relocated, and I did look throughout New York and the area, and there were no buildings that would fit the bill for the modular construction, so the business would have to move to Pennsylvania or further down south or up in New York State. It couldn't stay in New York City. It turns out transporting modules on highways isn't easy either. Every state has their own laws as to how wide and how long you can drive on the highways. Pennsylvania, for years, went up to 14 feet. The townhouse project that was built in New York City in Brooklyn and moved out to the edge of Brooklyn had modules that were close to 20 feet. But you can't do that in Pennsylvania and bring it into New York because you can't drive through Pennsylvania with 20-foot wide modules. So if you wanted to build that same townhouse in Pennsylvania, it would be four modules instead of two. There would be a lot more work on site to join them and obviously more money for transportation. It became very, very expensive and um, really unaffordable. Robbie told me he believed that there was still an enormous economic opportunity for developing modular projects in New York, even if it wouldn't be Capsis that was building the modules. With the success of the Carmel Place project, I asked Mimi why we weren't yet seeing many more modular buildings planned throughout New York City. She thought that the scope of the building project would have to be large enough in order to warrant a modular build. Partly it's a lack of expertise and partly it's the scale issue. So a lot of projects are just not big enough for modular to make sense. But then, you know, there is, it's just kind of a kind of lack of expertise. Um, it's a very particular way to build. And um, on both ends, the the site team and the factory team, there's um, there's a kind of lack of knowledge um, about how to bring that all together. So, for example, the modular team, they're doing all the units in the factory and then stacking them and and doing a lot of hookups, right? While the on-site team is working around them. So that kind of whole negotiation is a little bit tricky. But then, you know, in a typical construction process, a lot of your inspections, or or rather all of your inspections are on-site. So your structural inspections, your systems, plumbing, hookups, electrical power, all of those inspections are done at various stages on-site. With modular, there's inspections that are in the factory as well as on site. Up until that project, Capsis was the only company that um, was approved 
to build modular in New York City because they had proven themselves to to be able to build to code and get all those inspections. So where does all of this lead us? In August of 2016, Roger Krulak acquired the assets of FCS Modular and renamed the company Fullstack Modular. He has identified the problems that he thinks plagued the prior Brooklyn factories and is hoping to avoid them in future projects. In addition to the high cost of rent and the manufacturing problems, development in New York City requires a delicate balancing act with unions and with transporting constructed modules through the city's congested streets. Roger already has three buildings under development, and full-stack modular was able to retain the union contracts of the acquired company. There are factories being developed in other American cities with an explicit focus on modular, multifamily buildings. Steve Glenn is an entrepreneur I knew from the 1990s when we were both running internet companies. He saw the opportunity presented by factory-built housing in 2005 and started living homes out of Santa Monica in the greater Los Angeles area. That company is focused on single-family housing. Living Homes is similar to some of the companies I spoke about that are leveraging other companies' factories to construct homes. But more recently, he's come to believe that the bigger opportunity is in multifamily residences. For this challenge, he's both raised outside capital, notably from a fund founded by one of the Twitter founders, and built his own factory. The new company, called Plant Prefab, is focused on low-rise urban buildings between 2 and 12 floors, initially in the Los Angeles area. Steve's move to build multifamily housing is designed to capitalize on two trends, urban population growth and rising costs in labor. We're more focused on urban infill development. We're less interested these days in, in what, what's happening in the suburbs. And we're more interested because we, we, we think it's the most responsible place to build is, you know, in cities, that cities need to get denser um, to deal with the fact that populations are increasing. In the United States, factory-built construction significantly lags behind that of other highly developed countries. Several of the people I interviewed attributed this to inexpensive immigrant labor in the United States that has generally allowed for on-site construction to be cost-competitive with factory construction. But that's changing as the cost of labor in American urban markets rises. Labor costs are going up. And so in countries with very high labor costs, like Japan, like Germany, uh, like Scandinavia, prefab is the bigger uh, solution for home building. So um, Seksui in Japan is, is a prefabricator. And oh, by the way, it's Japan's biggest builder. Uh, in Scandinavia, maybe 70% of the homes are, are built uh, prefab. In the startup world, we often see venture capitalists adopt a herd-like mentality when it comes to funding. If a few top venture firms fund an advertising technology startup, then all the top venture firms want to invest in ad tech startups. The focus of venture capitalists can go through waves. Today, there's a lot of excitement around augmented reality and artificial intelligence and drones. And yet, other than the companies I've mentioned in this podcast series, we've barely seen any venture capital focused on factory-built housing. 
That's probably because venture capitalists often wait for the stars to align and the tea leaves to present them with obvious opportunities. Today, those tea leaves are speaking about ballooning urban growth, inefficient on-site construction, and proof points of others who have successfully demonstrated the cost advantages of building housing inside of factories. Venture capital is likely to flow to startups in this space. This will not be an easy space to conquer. There are so many moving pieces, so many entrenched interests, and yet the rewards are so tantalizing. In 2015, there were 385,800 new multifamily construction starts in the United States. The Multifamily Housing Council has been recording multifamily construction starts since 1992, and they've reported that this is the highest year yet for new multifamily construction starts. In just the United States, those apartments represented $41 billion in value. Everything I read tells me that the opportunities outside of the United States for multifamily buildings are still larger. From the interviews I've conducted, it might seem like there are a lot of folks focused on this space already. But when you consider the scale of the opportunity, the attention paid to this space as measured by the entrepreneurs who have trained their sights on it is more akin to a drop in the ocean. As best I can tell, this is likely to significantly change in the coming years. Big opportunities attract ambitious entrepreneurs, and usually a lot of them. I think we are rapidly approaching a tipping point where factory-built housing will become the norm, not the exception. Tune in to the next episode of Predicting Our Future to hear what the American construction industry can learn from the automotive industry when it comes to building the next generation of home-building factories. If you'd like to learn more about the companies featured in this podcast, as well as a few additional companies that I interviewed, go to predictingourfuture.com to access the full list of participants and all the interviews in their entirety. This is Predicting Our Future.